As we uh, journey through Deuteronomy, we come this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 9, and uh, reading from verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you, with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall, Anakites. You know about them and have heard it said, who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you. And you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord has promised you. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, The Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No. It's on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Understand then that it's not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. For you are a stiff-necked people. Remember this and never forget how you provoked the Lord your God to anger in the desert. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. At Horeb, you aroused the Lord's wrath so that he was angry enough to destroy you. When I went up on the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord had made with you, I stayed on the mountain forty days and forty nights. I ate no bread and drank no water. The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. On them were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain and out of the fire on the day of the assembly. At the end of the forty days and forty nights, the Lord gave me the two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord told me, go down from here at once, because your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They've turned away quickly from what I commanded them and have made a cast idol for themselves. And the Lord said to me, I've seen this people, and they are a stiff-necked people indeed. Let me alone, so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. So I turned and went down from the mountain while it was ablaze with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. And when I looked... I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took the two tablets and threw them out of my hands, breaking them into pieces before your eyes. Then once again I fell prostrate before the Lord for forty days and forty nights. I ate no bread and drank no water because of all the sin you'd committed doing what was evil in the Lord's sight and so provoking him to anger. I feared the anger and wrath of the Lord, for he was angry enough with you to destroy you. But again, the Lord listened to me. 
And the Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him. But at that time I prayed for Aaron too. And also I took that sinful thing of yours, the calf you'd made, and burned it in the fire. Then I crushed it, ground it to powder as fine as dust, and threw the dust into a stream that flowed down the mountain. And you also made the Lord angry at Tabera, at Massa, and at Kibroth Hatavah. And when the Lord your God sent you out from Kadesh Barnea, he said, go up and take possession of the land I've given you. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You didn't trust him or obey him. You have been rebellious against the Lord ever since I've known you. And I lay prostrate before the Lord those 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, O oh, sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness and their sin. Otherwise, the country from which you brought us will say, because the Lord wasn't able to take them into the land he promised them, and because he hated them, he brought them out to put them to death in the desert. But they're your people, your inheritance that you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. At that time, the Lord said to me, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones and come up to me on the mountain. Also make a wooden chest. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Then you are to put them in the chest. So I made the ark out of acacia wood and chiselled out two stone tablets like the first ones. And I went up on the mountain with the two tablets in my hands. The Lord wrote on these tablets what he'd written before. The Ten Commandments he proclaimed to you on the mountain, out of the fire, on the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I came back down the mountain and put the tablets in the ark I'd made, as the Lord commanded me. And they are there now. Thanks be to God for his word. So, Deuteronomy 9. Moses remembers what happened 40 years earlier when God was on the verge of letting Israel go, of destroying the nation. Israel's relationship with the Lord was almost finished before it had got off the ground. (coughs) Moses had been up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, learning about other miscellaneous legal matters, but time had dragged on a bit. And as the weeks went by and there was no sign of Moses, people began to wonder whether he was ever going to come back down again. They didn't find it easy to relate to a God who is invisible. Thought it would be far better and easier to put their faith in something that they could actually touch and see. So they made a golden calf, adopted it as their God, and had a major party to celebrate. As Moses recalls, the Lord was not impressed. He was livid contemplated destroying Israel, making a fresh start with Moses. In Exodus, we read that Moses stood shoulder to shoulder with the people and refused to be separated from them. If you're going to destroy them, you need to destroy me along with them, he said. In Exodus 33 and 34, we read of a protracted period of negotiation between Moses and God. And even if 
you know, God says, okay, I'll spare the people. It looks like this could still be the parting of the ways between the Lord and his people. The Lord says, I'm not going to go with them to the promised land. If I go with them, I might end up destroying them because they're such a capricious and stiff-necked people. I'll send my angel, but I'm not going to go. And then Moses keeps on and on praying, and eventually uh, he doesn't stop until the relationship between God and his people has been fully restored. The Lord forgives his people, stubborn and stiff-necked as they are, and resumes his place in their midst, at the centre of their lives again. It's a strange and disturbing passage. The God of Israel comes across as really petulant. It's like God loses his temper big time, and Moses calms him down, sorts him out, just brings a bit of peace back into the situation. Moses takes it upon himself to talk God down from the initial response of destructive rage at Israel's unfaithfulness and idolatry to the point where he's ready to forgive them and resume his place among them. And as you read these chapters next to St. Deuteronomy, I think to yourself, is this what God is really like? Is he really that bad-tempered? Is he really that angry all the time? And Moses actually seems to emerge from the incident with a great deal more credibility than God does. So he can perhaps be excused in Deuteronomy 9 for virtually claiming that without his prayerful intercession, it would have been the end for Israel. And God's reaction to the the golden calf seems really extreme to us. But use your own feelings as a mirror. Think of the sense of hurt and anger and rejection that you have felt or you would feel if someone close to you was unfaithful. If they turned away and rejected the relationship they had with you for someone, something that was clearly greatly inferior. How would you feel? And you see why God feels how he does and why he reacts how he does. Even so, as you read about how the Lord reacts to the incident of the golden calf, you might feel that this, this God is still all too human in the violence of his emotions. And you wouldn't be alone in thinking that. It's possible that our perception of how anger works has been projected onto God in this passage. Does God really experience the kind of violent swings of emotion that we see here? And it is perhaps in response to passages like this that the idea emerges that God in his true nature is impassable. God doesn't feel a thing. God just remains completely calm and isolated and untouched and unmoved by anything else that happens in the world. God doesn't feel anything because emotions, feelings are human, and God is not human. And so we have this idea of God being lofty, aloof, and 100% affected by anything that we do. But that's, that's the opposite extreme. That's not the God of the Bible, who's passionate about his people, the God who actually makes himself vulnerable, open to being hurt by his people by entering into a relationship with them. And the miracle, the wonder, the amazing thing about God entering into a relationship with us 
is that we have the capacity to affect how God feels. And if we do stuff wrong, that brings grief into the heart of God, the depths of which we cannot begin to comprehend. And we, frightening thought, have the capacity to make God angry by how we live and the things that we do. Because he cares. Because it matters. Because he loves the people that we mistreat and is angry with us on their behalf. Equally, we have the capacity to make God feel good when we worship him. When our praise comes from the heart, when we mean the songs that we sing or the words that we pray or what we read or listen to, when when we give God our love, he is glad in response to that. We worship a God who is deeply involved with us. And that means we have the capacity to affect him one way or another by how we respond to him, how we treat him, what we do, how we engage with him and others. And it's evident from this episode of the Golden Calf that what we do can affect God very deeply indeed. And correspondingly, it's it's because God has entered into this kind of relationship with us that our prayers can and do have a real effect on God. They make a difference. Prayer is is a mystery, which, like everything about God, the more you think about it, the more difficult it is to get your head around. How can our prayers affect God? Yet in some mysterious sense, they do. God doesn't sit in heaven impassively filtering out all those prayers which just don't correspond to his foreordained, unalterable will and purpose. There is a sense in which it's possible for us to prevail upon the Almighty through our prayers. That's a profound mystery. And he allows us to do that, not, I think, because he's too mean-spirited to do the right thing unless we come on bended knee before him and beg him to do what ought to be done, but rather because it's his intention and desire to involve us in his good purposes. He wants us to cooperate with his spirit. He longs for us to have the opportunity and privilege to play our part in achieving what he wants to do, aligning ourselves with his goodwill so that he can use our prayers and our willingness to do the right thing to bring about whatever good it is he intends to achieve. On the afternoon when I was writing this sermon, I was having conversations with a financial advisor about whether to retain or opt out of the guaranteed annuity rate being offered by an insurance company in respect of a very small pension pot that I have. I was trying to concentrate on this. I just wanted her to tell, her, to tell me what, what I should do. And I've done with it. But she wasn't going to do that. Uh, she wanted to find out all about, you know, what kind of person I was and what our situation would be when we retired and what my attitude of risk was and what other sources of income we had. And uh, she wanted me to be involved in the decision-making process to consider all the options and the implications so that I could make an informed and wise decision. And it was all just a bit of a distraction because I was trying to figure out what to say to you this morning. But to some extent, that's how prayer works. 
We want it to be easy. God, just tell us what to do. God, just sort this out for us. I've got so many other things. I've got to be, you know, God, will you just resolve this quickly? And God doesn't work like that. He wants to involve us. He wants us to be part of the process. God isn't into treating us like children and just doing everything for us all the time. Prayer is his way of drawing us in, enabling us to get to know him better, to become more like him, to have an understanding of what he's like and what the situation is about and what he wants to do and how we should respond and how we should be involved. Sometimes I wonder whether on those occasions when we look for easy answers to prayer and are disappointed we don't get them, the problem isn't that God isn't up to the task, but rather sometimes we've just treated prayer a bit too superficially. When you see Moses negotiating with God, when he reminds the Lord of how the Lord redeemed his people from Egypt, remember the promises you made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, think about all that negative PR if you reject your people and kill them in the wilderness. You suppose God was scratching his head saying, oh, yeah, I never thought of that. I, I could have made a dreadful mistake here, Moses. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm so grateful to you for pointing that out. Surely Moses isn't saying anything to God that God doesn't know already. But in, in bringing before God how he feels God should act. Moses himself is seeing the kind of God that God is. This is how God should work. This is, this, is, this is the kind of God he belongs to, the God he's praying to. And that understanding about God and what God should do and about how situations should be resolved, that understanding comes through prayer. And it's as we pray that we and the Lord can become aligned together with a common purpose in mind. I'm reading a book at the moment by a guy called Ashley Coxworth called, appropriately enough, Prayer, a Guide for the Perplexed. Um, yeah. I think if you're in a maze, it helps you value being in the maze, but it's not a good guide how to get into the maze or how to get out of it. It's quite complicated. But one of the original and helpful ideas to come out of the book is that prayer is like joining in with an ongoing conversation that's already happening between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are talking to each other all the time. And prayer is, is listening in. And recognising, actually, they want us to be part of that conversation. To join in. To be talking about what they're talking about. For their agenda to become our agenda. And for us to say, actually, Lord, you know, what about this? Can I bring this before you? It's all about building the relationship. And that picture of prayer involves listening, getting to know the person that you're talking to, chiming in with their agenda, enjoying being part of their circle. It's very different from treating prayer as if we were going up to the post office counter to buy some stamps, send a letter, and renew car tax, which is sometimes how we treat prayer. And it's not the level at which God wants to engage with us. He's looking for something altogether far more deep and meaningful, where we learn and he acts in response to our prayers. Whatever else you might say or think about Moses, there's no doubt that here we have a man who took God seriously. 
Seriously enough to spend 40 days up on a mountain fasting and praying when he received the Ten Commandments, going back for another 40-day stint to sort out the fallout from Israel's idolatry. Had Israel taken God seriously, had they understood who they were dealing with, there's no way they would have shifted their allegiance from the living God to a golden calf. But perhaps a fundamental aspect of human sinfulness is a failure to take God seriously enough. And we find it so easy to live as though he doesn't matter or isn't all that important or isn't bothered. Whereas if we can just get by on our own resources, we don't need God. Moses warns Israel against making that kind of mistake. Don't think you're getting the land on account of your own righteousness, he tells them. As if it's just because you're so much better than the nations living there now. If you stop and think about your track record of honouring God, you'll realise just how far off the truth that perspective is. All of us have the option of living our lives under our own steam without giving God a second thought. But it's a time-limited option because he's the only one who can extend our life beyond the grave. So if you want an eternal life option in your portfolio, you need to take God seriously and have dealings with the living God. And that means reckoning with his holiness. And if you want to maximise your potential for goodness by living a life that is truly honouring to God here and now, then you need to put him right at the centre of who you are and make him the focus of your life. And if the extent to which you pray were to be taken as a measure of how important God is to you, how seriously you take him, what would the findings be? I guess what I'm saying, what maybe God wants to say through this passage, is that there's more to prayer than just running a list of requests past him at the checkout counter. Because God cares deeply, passionately, about you and about what you care about. And because he cares to that level, he is emotionally involved with you to the extent that he rejoices over your well-being, shares your pain when things go wrong, is upset when you do rubbish stuff. It's worth investing time in your relationship with him through prayer. Where to start? The Lord's Prayer is always a good place to start. Just taking it a phrase at a time, working your way through. The song that we sang is based upon the daily office. If you're online, you could go online and and look at the Celtic daily office and begin with morning prayer there. If you're not online, there is a book, two books actually, published by the Iona community on daily prayer. Excellent resource to guide you into praying and allowing God's agenda to become your agenda. Does this church matter to you? When and where and with whom do you pray for our life together and our future together? God wants us to be involved in that kind of way. I'm not very patient when it comes to doing puzzles. Pick it up, can't do it easily, put it to one side, which rather misses the point of a puzzle, actually. The point is, it's supposed to be difficult. It's supposed to take time. You're supposed to get involved and figure it out and get a sense of achievement when you've done it. God is a bit like a puzzle. The easy option, the way out, is to have a couple of goes at solving it and just put it down because you can't be bothered. 
but give the puzzle time and attention and you solve it and the experience can become absorbing and ultimately rewarding. God is the ultimate puzzle. Take him seriously. Take the time and effort to get to know him. Find the time in your daily routine to pray, to listen in to that conversation between Father, Son and Holy Spirit, to join in, to let their agenda become yours and to bring before them the things that bother you. Because getting to know God can transform your life every single day and for eternity. God is there to be taken seriously. He gave his son, because you matter that much to him, to bring his presence into the darkness of your life. God is there. He is Lord. He is Saviour. Take him seriously. Make him part of your life. Find the time to engage with him in prayer. It's an investment for now and for eternity. If you want to pray with someone this morning, the prayer team will be there and there'll be other people with badges at the end of the service. Shall I lead us in prayer? Lord, you know the pressured, busy lives which we live, the constant demands upon our time, the things that require our attention, the voices that are so shrill and loud, the images we can't avoid. And we find it difficult to be still and know that you are God. Bring us to a place of stillness. Bring us to a place of worship. Bring us to a place of holiness where we recognise who you are. Bring us to a place of grace where we recognise what you have done for us in your Son, Jesus Christ, that you welcome us and accept us because Christ is our Saviour. And bring us to a place of hope where we come before you with our needs and our fears and put our trust in you because you are the living God and you care about us. Thank you that we matter to you. Lord, bring us to the point where you matter to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.